You are listening to The Urban Andy Show. I'm your host, Lori Ikata. This show talks about important Native issues and highlights guests that are representing Native people in a wide variety of careers. Featured guests talk about how their Alaska Native culture impacts their work. Listen to all of the Urban Anti Show episodes on Spotify and theurbanantishow.com. Like our Facebook page and follow the Urban Anti Show on Twitter to stay up to date on future episodes. Hello, you are listening to the Urban Anti Show. I'm your host, Laura Ikata, and today I'm here with Tiana Teeter to talk about her work at the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center and her life and education and how she got there. I'll start by introducing myself, Laura Ikata Suuza Dehun Danaka. Hefte de Ludinith A Sisni Ita A Johnny Kada Beuza Ina A Misty Carlo Riley Beuza Satsu Uza Madeline Riley Satsia Uza um, James Ikada Senior Gela um, Nulada Hotan Eslan Fairbanks Lasta My name is Laura and my Koikan name is de Ludinith A my parents are Johnny Cata and Misty Carlo Riley, and my grandparents are Madeline Riley and the late James E. Cata Sr. I'm from Nulato, but I was raised in Minto, but I have family in Kaikuk and Huslia and everywhere. <laughs> and um, I am, I live in Fairbanks. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Um, so my name is Tiana Teeter. Uh, my parents are Phyllis Atla and Jerry Woods. Uh, my maternal grandparents are the late George Atla and the late Shirley Vent. And my paternal grandparents are um, the late Walter Woods and the late Judy Woods. My Koyakon name is Yenzach. Um, and my family is from Huslia, Alaska. And um, I also have family in Tanana, Alaska, Rampart, and Manly Hot Springs. Is that uh, George Atla, the dog musher? Yes, that's my grandpa. <laughs> cool. So you got cool blood. Yeah, <laughs> I like to think so anyway. <laughs> yeah. So um, what did you get your bachelor's degree in and why did you choose that? Uh, so I got my bachelor's degree in social work. Um, and I, I think I'm just naturally a very 
like empathetic person. So I always knew I wanted to help people. I just didn't know how. Um, so when I was in college, or sorry, when I was in high school, I thought I wanted to um, graduate and then volunteer and join the Peace Corps so I could work with victims of sex trafficking in other countries. Um, I ended up not doing that, and I decided, you know, maybe I'll get into the medical field and be a doctor or a nurse. So I went to UAA, and I, I mean, apparently you have to be really good at science and math um, to be a doctor, and I didn't know that. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> told me you had to be good at math. So I ended up dropping out immediately, um, and it took me a little bit to kind of find my avenue of wanting to help people, and I decided uh, it would be social work. So I got my bachelor's in social work. Um, and I minored in human services uh, with a concentration in addictions counseling. Yeah, I'm currently on the medical field path. Oh, good I'm, for you. I'm hoping to be a doctor and I'm just like having a hard time right now. Yeah, <laughs> I admire that so much, though. Yeah, <laughs> I'm in really heavy science classes and it's just crazy. Yeah, <laughs> it keeps you busy. It's it's hard work. Yeah, <laughs> so good for you. Um, I actually chose the my university where I want to get my master's based on the fact that, you know, I didn't have to take another math class. Mm. So that's, that's how my life is. Nice. <laughs> Are you working on your master's now? No, not yet. I hope to um, start that process in the next few months. Okay. And what do you want to do that in? Social work. I, oh. um, I think I want to be a licensed social worker um, so I could provide mental health services to uh, the native communities um, in Alaska. Yeah, that's really important. Yes. <laughs> and um, how has your culture helped you in your education journey? Um, well, my culture has always been like a big protective factor for me when I was growing up. Um, I was a part of different Athabascan dance groups um, through my high school. And then when I started attending UAF, uh, I helped found the Trothiata Athabascan dance group. And I was a member of that group for a while um, you know, when I was always really stressed, I would turn to things like beading and sewing. Um, and just, I found my community and my culture. Um, I found people who I connected with, who had the same interests as I did, who had the same struggles I did, who had, um, who had experienced similar traumas and who were just looking for, you know, um, their family and their connection. And, you know, I found that through my culture. And so it was really important to me to choose a job based on, um, the fact that I'd be connected to my culture and be able to do work uh, related to it. Yeah, I uh, I like to bead when I'm just like stressed out. Yes. And it's very meditative. It is. It's therapeutic. Yeah. It allows you to sit there and to think and to focus on what you're doing, you know, one beat at a time. And it's it's really medicinal. It's <laughs> it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. And being a part of dance groups, you're just like you put yourself in this community where you can build a social support. Yes, exactly. And um, not only that, but you're communicating um, with elders and teachers who want to teach you these songs that are like hundreds of years old. Um, and it's it's like empowering to be with a group of people and singing in your native language. Um, and so I think I really found my, my comfort in that, in hearing my language and in just being with a group of people who are my age and who are trying to do the same thing, learn their language and sing songs and teach it to, you know, the next generation. Yeah, we just had a Khan Athabascan workshop yesterday, language workshop. Oh, that's amazing. With Susan Paskman. And it was so nice to just like hear her. She's just like a great person. 
but it was so nice to hear her speak the language and just get more resources because I'm trying to learn my language too like slowly Mm -hmm. when I have time yes and um it's fun it is it's fun and it's like it's that same thing it's empowering you know to know that you're learning a language that your grandparents spoke fluently and that you're claiming that back for yourself Mm -hmm. and uh, you work um at the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center what do you do there So I'm a program specialist at the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center. I primarily work with tribes that have or that want to get um, OVC grants, which are uh, grants through the Office of Victims of Crime. Um, And basically those grants help uh, rural communities build things like um, victim services. Uh, They help provide advocacy resources a lot of tribes are using that grant money to build uh domestic violence and sexual sexual assault shelters in their communities um they're getting advocacy training from us um and we're basically just trying to provide them any kind of support that we can so that they can be successful do you help them apply for grants or like do you write them uh so the alaska native women's resource center we do help tribes that are interested in getting grants we help them through that process okay and um, how does your cultural background and knowledge help you in this work? Well, in this work specifically, it guides a lot of the training and the presentations we do. Um, so right now, um, like within the last week, I was I became a member of it's called DART, but it's the Disability Abuse Response Team. And I recently became a hub member Um And they asked me to do some training and presentations on like keeping confidentiality in rural communities and what's that like. They asked um, for presentations on communication barriers um, and tribal protective factors (laughs) so that, um, you know, we can just help more service providers understand that although like a lot of the cultures in Alaska are similar, they're they're very different. You know, they're very Mm -hmm. unique. They have. Um, their own forms of regionalized language and so when they're trying to get services they have these barriers that come up that kind of prevent them because I feel like Alaska Native people can be put into a box where service providers think you know they have this specific language they speak in this certain way but it's different for every region and every community and so we're just trying to get more of that information out there so it can be easier for um, indigenous people to get help when they need it yeah and it could be hard getting help in those rural communities, especially. Yes, it's not only hard to get help in the rural communities, but it's really hard to have to leave your community. If you're in like a domestic violence situation where, you know, you have to report, um, you can face a lot of backlash in your community. A lot of victims are forced to leave their communities, um, you know, to get advocacy services or to get shelter Um, or to get any kind of help. And it's really hard to leave all of your protective factors, you know, your language, all of your foods, all of your comforts, your family, your entire support system, to go into a hub community such as Fairbanks to try and get help. Um, Yeah, it's not not working very well. So we're trying to work really hard to get tribes to um, be able to have their own victim services in their communities so that, you know, victims of crime don't have to leave, but that they can access that help in their homes. Okay. And uh, what other projects are you working on at the Resource Center? Uh, Well, recently I started doing a lot of work in the area of human trafficking. 
Um, and so basically working with a human trafficking capacity resource center um, that's not in Alaska to try to get more information on human trafficking in general and then making it more relevant to Alaska itself, making sure it's culturally appropriate material and getting that education out to rural communities because a lot of people don't realize that we have a trafficking problem here in the state um, and it's getting worse. And so we're just trying to get that um, that social issue out there and to make it known that it is a thing and it is happening and here's how and here's what you can do to prevent it to just try and get that material out to um, indigenous people in the state. So do you kind of like help educate people about maybe like red flag behaviors to watch out for? Yeah. So noticing um, like red flags. Um, and so one thing that we do is uh, since COVID, originally my job is supposed to be a lot of travel, traveling to communities and doing these trainings. Um, but since COVID, it's all become virtual and doing these virtual engagements online and over the phone. Um, and, you know, it could be over the course of 12 weeks. We have a presentation every week. And, um, you know, one of those could be like human trafficking and noticing the red flags and what to look out for, you know, what to teach your kids. Uh, in the past, we've worked with Priceless based out of, I believe, Anchorage. Um, and they've presented material on Internet safety and how to keep um, track of, you know, what your kids are doing online and basically providing, you know, information on trafficking and how real it is and that it is actually happening. Yeah. So are these trainings available to just any tribal um, members? Yeah. So they're available to, well, they're, they're regionalized. Um, so in the past we've done it um, for like the Clinket and Haida region, you know, they decided they wanted to do an engagement for their communities. So we made all of our material focused on their culture and their language and made it specific to them. Um, you know, if a tribe is interested in doing this kind of engagement, they, they're the boss. So they get to kind of decide what they want to, you know, present to their community, what they want their advocates to learn. Um, they can specify everything and we just kind of follow their lead and meet them where they're at. Okay. Hello, you are listening to the Urban Anti Show. I'm here with uh, Tiana Teeter from the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center. And we just talked about her education and her work with the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center and what kind of projects they're working on. And now we're going to talk about um, missing and murdered Indigenous women. So you said the Alaska Native Resource Center has a toolkit or you provide a toolkit? Yeah. So um, within the last year, um, well, I've been there for about a year and a half. And within that time, uh, they, the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center has been working to develop an MMIW toolkit, which is basically like an action plan that um, communities can follow when a person goes missing so that they can do something immediately, you know, that they don't have to rely on the help of law enforcement. Um, they don't have to have that long waiting period, but they can start. Um, and it's just a way to help keep them organized. It has um, resources. It has uh, basic information that, you know, when you're in a scary situation and a loved one is missing and, you know, there's a lot going on and everybody's trying to help in certain ways, um, it just kind of helps organize that a little bit better for the family and for the searchers and for, you know, everybody's who's who is a part of that effort and finding that person. Um, and I 
I really I recently just saw like the final printed uh, copy of it. And so I'm not sure of the details of how, you know, that will be administered to communities or anything like that. But I'm really excited. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful toolkit. Um, yeah, because acting fast is like the most important thing, right? Yeah. And there's this myth going around that, you know, when somebody goes missing, you have to wait 24 hours before you can uh, report that to law enforcement, which is not true. Um, and so this toolkit kind of helps families do something immediately because, you know, those first 24 hours are really important in locating a missing person. Uh, what kind of things are like, what are the steps in the toolkit, if you know? Oh, I wish I had it in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it has like, and I'm going off of memory here, mm -hmm. um, but there are pages that have like... Um, phone numbers for people to call or phone numbers that you have already called that you can write down to help keep yourself organized. There's mm. uh, there's pages where, you know, you're putting certain people in charge of certain things, doing certain things. Oh, okay. um, so not everybody's trying to do the same thing at once. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of really good information in it. So like delegating the action and search and whatnot. Yeah. Just so that whole process can be a lot smoother. Because I imagine if you're in that situation, you're like not thinking clearly and you're scared. And so having that toolkit will be really helpful. Yeah. And, you know, when somebody goes missing, there's a lot of people you have to be communicating with. You know, the family, um, the police officers who are searching, the people who, like the community members who are searching. Um, there's a lot of different aspects and a lot of work that goes into that. So, yeah. And I think today... Um, it's been a year since Willis Randolph has been missing. Yes. Also. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was hard, hard following that journey. Yes. It's really emotional. And, um, you know, I'm from Huslia, so knowing the family and being really close to them, it, it is hard because, you know, there's just, there's so much pain and there's so much hurt around it. Um, there's so few answers. Um, it can feel like there's not very much support coming and from, you know, these entities that are that are supposed to be helping you, that should be helping you. And you just, you know, kind of feel lost and you feel helpless. And um, and being in this work and in this field all the time, you know, we're constantly hearing about people who are going missing. You know, we're constantly talking about MMIW. We're constantly talking about human trafficking and sexual assault and domestic violence. And um, it can be really hard to hear those things every day, all day. And so... You know, when you know the person who is missing, it can it's it can get emotional. Do you ever get uh, compassion fatigue in your work? I do. Um, I want to say not so much anymore because I used to be uh, a direct service provider. So for a few years, I worked at a uh, as an, a domestic violence and a sexual assault advocate. Um, I worked and volunteered at a child advocacy center. And so, you know, hearing these stories and these experiences that, you know, these kids or these women or just these people in general that they're going through, it could be really hard. Um, but now in my job where it's more from a systems perspective and I'm not providing that direct service, it could just be hard to, uh, like on Monday, um, you know, it was a beautiful sunny day. It was after the weekend. I was kind of tired. I didn't really feel like working, but I had to research and look into human trafficking. And I was like, you know what? I just, I don't know if that's the mood right now. I don't know if I want to be reading about all of these missing people and looking at all of these depressing statistics. So, you know, that part of my job can get kind of difficult sometimes. Um, when I first started, 
I was doing a lot of presentations on sexual assault for communities. And it's like one of our more in-depth presentations, one of our presentations that gets a lot of responses from people who are listening. Um, We get a lot of disclosures of people who um, just want somebody to talk to and who need that support. And um, after presenting that for a long period of time, I needed to take a step back and present on something else for a while. I needed to take a break from sexual assault for a while and just focus on uh, something that wasn't so triggering. Mm -hmm. So what kind of things do you do to battle your compassion fatigue? Well, and like taking care of my mental health in general, I think routine is especially important for me. So if I have a good morning routine where, you know, I'm waking up before my kids are and I have like a slow start to my day, um, if I'm able to like work out or do yoga that day, or if I can try to journal, um, you know, those things help. Those things make a big difference. But if I'm not doing any of those things, if I'm not taking care of myself, then the job can get really hard. And that's something we're always talking about at my work is our self-care. Um, we joke about it a lot because everybody I work with, they're such, they're such amazing people. They, they work so hard and they do such difficult work. And, you know, a lot of us in this field, in the social work field, in this field of trying to help people, uh, self-care can be really hard. <laughs> it's hard to maintain that. And so we're always joking, like, you know, we need to practice this better. You know, we need to take care of ourselves better. Um, but I mean, we definitely encourage it to, to everybody else, especially our advocates and, you know, in their rural communities where like, you need to do self-care. Um, but I mean, so do we. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's something you have to be really intentional about, intentional about. Yes. And you have to make time for it Mm -hmm. for sure and it like a lot of times it could feel like a chore you know like Mm -hmm. (laughs) like I don't know if I want to do this right now like it it can get tiring but oh it's so important yeah 100 percent. yeah and so back to MMIW what are some current statistics that you know so indigenous women are murdered at a rate that's 10 times higher than any other ethnicity um, you know, and 84% of Native women have experienced violence in their lifetime. Um, and murder is actually the fifth leading cause of death for Native women ages 25 to 34. Yeah. And knowing these statistics is really important in just like moving action and just like creating action. Yes. And, and just having that knowledge and in knowing that as a Native woman myself, that the likelihood of me being murdered or sexually assaulted is a lot higher than the chances of me ever having gotten a college degree, you know, and that's, that's the reality for so many native women that, you know, the statistics of the likelihood of them being murdered is more likely than they'll be able to get into college. And it's, it's crazy. It's scary. It's terrifying. And being in this work and being a mother, I have two daughters. Um, It's so scary. It terrifies me so much. And, you know, I just hope that I can be that one in three for them so that my daughters don't ever have to experience anything like I ever had. I just hope that I can work to create safer spaces for them, you know, where they can feel safe and where they can feel like, you know, they can use their voice or, you know, share their opinions on things or just like going to the store at night and feeling safe in a parking lot, you know, things like that. Yeah. And um, I asked uh, Charlene, APOC. Um, she's from Native Movement. I asked her about statistics 
And she said she doesn't really like to think of statistics because like these are like women and they have like names and they're someone's sister and someone's mom. And so they're not just numbers. They're like people. They're people. Yeah. And I've heard her speak before. And um, she you can tell like she's very passionate about this work because she when she, like when reading these statistics, she gets very emotional and she cries. And it's just like an eye opening like. I'm around statistics all day. I mean, we're we're just trying to get as much information at the resource center as we can. And so it can sometimes feel like there's statistics, but you just have to stop and think like this is a person, you know, this is a person who is missing or this is a person who was murdered. It's not just a number. And why is data collection important? It's important because it gives not only us an idea of what the issue is, it's information that you know hospitals police forces you know it's information that they need in order to provide help and provide services um like for uh mmiw for instance for a long time you know i feel like that was an issue that was being ignored and our statistics and our numbers were rising really rapidly and it felt like you know nobody was paying attention and so and in getting accurate statistics it gives us an idea of what the problem is so that we could provide help where it's needed um, where more people can focus their efforts and we can get, you know, not only more direct services, but laws and policy changed in order to in order to change that so that, you know, our numbers aren't just rising, you know, in the back corner where nobody's paying attention to it. We want it up in front and center so people can see, like, this is a huge problem and we need to do something about it. Is data collection accurate right now? No. Um, and that's something we're always struggling with is because we don't have accurate data and that's for a number of reasons that could be because you know one people aren't reporting or two uh, like law enforcement aren't recording it correctly so instead of a missing person or a murder it could be um, categorized under suspicious circumstances or natural causes of death you know things like that so you kind of mentioned this but how can data be better collected I think there just needs to be a lot more focus, a lot more research in general, because, you know, if you can just look up any kind of statistic rate in any other state, you know, you get accurate numbers, you get numbers from like last year. But if you look up human trafficking numbers for Alaska, I mean, I was just trying to do this this weekend. The most recent data we got was from like a long time ago, like eight years ago. Um, and it's really hard to do any kind of education or awareness um, when you don't have numbers to show for it and when people don't think it's an issue and you don't have numbers to show for it um, people don't think it's like a problem they're not going to try to help yeah data collection is very important especially for the people that um, are impacted by this missing and murdered indigenous Mm -hmm. woman crisis so if we had better data we would have a lot of um, probably change in action. Yes, yeah. a lot more support. Yeah, for sure. And uh, what other services um, or resources can you think of for people or like women in crisis or just like anybody? Okay, so that is. A very important question. It's a very big question, and it really is dependent on where they are at. So here in Fairbanks, um, you know, if they're a victim of a crime, if they're a victim of domestic violence or of sexual assault, and if they're 
Alaska Native, um, they can go to the Healing Native Hearts Coalition, um, which is an advocacy center that provides direct victim services. So, um, you know, they, they can have an advocate to help them through a protective order. They can have an advocate to sit with them through a, uh, a SART exam, a sexual assault response team exam, you know, at the hospital, if they want somebody to accompany them to court, um, you know, they can have, they can have that support from an advocate. Um, and in Fairbanks, we also have the, I, I hope I say this right. The, in, what is it? Interior Alaska center for nonviolent living. Yes. Is that okay. There's also that resource for, um, victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. They have a shelter, they provide advocacy, they provide legal advocacy. Um, and so when I was an advocate working for the Healing Native Hearts Coalition, I ended up working um, with one of their legal advocates a lot because, you know, that was an area I lacked and we had a lot of people who needed that kind of support. Yeah. But um, in terms of the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center, we don't provide direct services. Uh, we don't uh, work with victims, but we try to um, do like a warm handoff to to whatever agency that they, they need help and support from, you know, we try to connect them to, to somebody who can help them. We don't just let them leave. <laughs> yeah. So you do like bigger umbrella services to like tribes and so that they can help. Yeah. Women. So, um, we provide, it's just like general technical assistance to tribes to help them build up their own victim services in their own communities. Um, and so it's kind of like, I went from a position where I was an advocate and I was working with victims and survivors to being in this position where I'm at now to helping advocates, you know, providing the advocates with training and support so that, you know, they can provide those services to victims. Cool. And um, that's all the questions I have. Is there anything else you want to add or any shout outs to anybody? Um, I mean, I don't think there's anything else I'd like to add, but. I really enjoy my job. I really enjoy working for the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center. And I was just thinking about it in, in preparing for this interview. I was thinking about my job and I was like, this is actually like my dream job. This was the job I envisioned when I was in school. I wanted to be in a position where I could provide education to tribes um, so that we could provide more victims of violence help and support. Um, because I know what it's like to be helpless. I know what it's like to in a situation that's really traumatic and you know feel like you're kind of left in the dark and so just doing whatever I can to help support people who who need help um and right now this has been just such a beneficial way to do that and I'm I'm just so happy to be here yeah do you feel like it's rewarding it is it is so rewarding <laughs> in so many ways um one of my favorite things is traveling to communities and actually meeting the people rather than, you know, talking to them on the phone or just seeing them on like Zoom is actually meeting them and getting to know them in their communities, learning about their culture and trying their foods. Um, it's so beneficial and it's so rewarding just just working with Native people and um, being able to be connected to my culture is definitely, that's it for me. Did you do a lot of travel before COVID? No, um, not really. Mm -hmm. And so when I took this job, I knew in my mind that I was going to be having to travel like once or twice a month. There was a lot of travel um, for this job, but I started the week that COVID was declared like a pandemic. And so mm. all of the travel stopped immediately. And we were put in this position where, you know, we had plans to go to a community and do an engagement and do training. 
Um, and we were like, okay, how can we do this virtually? And so in the short span of just a couple weeks, we made an entire virtual plan. And so we've been doing that um, since then. And it's, I mean, it's getting easier. It's getting um, smoother. The material is more set out and more concrete. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, it's working, but I'm excited and I'm hoping to get to travel to more communities again in the future once it's safe again. Yeah. Well, thank you for talking with me today. It was great to have you to talk about these important topics. And it's good to have that insight and your knowledge and your work. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, (laughs) you're doing important work. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hello. We just talked with Tiana Teeter from the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center. She talked all about her education and background and her current position at the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center. And we talked about how her cultural background and her cultural knowledge influences her work and some of the projects and things they do at the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center. Um, She assists tribes in applying for grants And they do a lot of work to help tribes, to help tribes serve women in their communities. We talked about the missing and murdered indigenous woman crisis and the importance of data collection and the importance of having accurate statistics. When you have better data collection, then we can create change we can um we can really motivate the congress to create change and to do some action the savannah act was passed in 2020 and the savannah act directs the attorney general to review revise and develop law enforcement and justice protocols appropriate to address missing and murdered indigenous people and for other purposes so this act really was important in getting funds for the attorney general to really put work into data collection alaska just got a new position the missing and murdered indigenous persons coordinator and that is ingrid cumberledge ingrid is a tribal judge and um, educator And that is her position. And she will actually be on the show next week to talk with us about her life, education, culture, and work as the Department of Justice's Missing and Murdered Indigenous Persons Coordinator in the state of Alaska. So I'm excited to talk with her next week. Thank you for listening to The Urban Anti Show. Be sure to like The Urban Anti Show on Facebook and follow us on Twitter to stay up to date on Urban Anti Show news. Zan Nazoon, it's a good day.